Chapter 17 of The Armorer's Prentices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Esther Ben Simonides. The Armorer's Prentices by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter 17 Ill May Day. With two and two together tied, through temple, bar, and strand they go. To Westminster there to be tried, with ropes about their necks also. And where was Stephen? Crouching, wretched with hunger, cold, weariness blows, and what was far worse, sense of humiliation and disgrace and terror for the future, in a corner of the yard of Newgate, whither the whole set of lads, surprised in Warwick Inner Court by the law students of the Inns of Court, had been driven like so many cattle at the sword's point, with no attention or perception that he and Giles had been struggling against the spoilers. Yet this fact made them all the more forlorn. The others, some forty in number, their companions in misfortune, included most of the Barbican prentices, who were of the Eagle faction, special enemies alike to Abanalee and the Dragon, and these held aloof from Headley and Birkenholt, nay, reviled them for the attack which they had declared had caused the general capture. The two lads of the Dragon had, in no measured terms, denounced the cruelty to the poor old and offensive man, and were denounced in their turns as friends of the sorcerer but all were too much exhausted by the night's work to have spirit for more than a snarling encounter of words, and the only effect was that Giles and Stephen were left isolated in their misery outside the shelter of the handsome arched gateway under which the others congregated. Newgate had been rebuilt by Whittington out of pity to poor prisoners and captives. It must have been unspeakably dreadful before, for the foulness of the narrow paved court, shut in by strong walls, was something terrible. Tired, spent, and aching all over, and with boyish callousness to dirt, Still Giles and Stephen hesitated to sit down, and when at last they could stand no longer, they rested, leaning against one another. Stephen tried to keep up hope by declaring that his master would soon get them released, and Giles alternated between despair and declarations that he would have justice on those who so treated his father's son. They dropped asleep, first one and then the other, from sheer exhaustion, waking from time to time to realize that it was no dream, and to feel all the colder and more cramped. By and by there were voices at the gate. Friends were there asking after their own Will or John or Thomas, as the case might be. The jailer opened a little wicket window in the heavy door, and, no doubt for consideration, passed in food to certain lads whom he called out, but it did not always reach his destination. It was often torn away as by hungry wolves. For though the felons had been let out, when the doors were opened, the new prisoners were not by any means all apprentices. There were watermen, husbandmen, beggars, thieves among them attracted by the scent of plunder, and even some of the elder lads had no scruple in snatching the morsel from the younger ones. Poor little Jasper Hope, a mischievous little curly-headed fellow, only thirteen, just apprenticed to his brother the draper, and rushing about with the other youths in the pride of his flat cap, was one of the sufferers. A servant had been at the door, promising that his brother would have him speedily released, and handing in bread and meat, of which he was instantly robbed by George Bates, and three or four more big fellows, and sent away reeling and sobbing, under a heavy blow, with all the mischief and play that knocked out of him. Stephen and Giles shawled, shame, but were unheeded, and they could only draw the little fellow up to them, and assure him that his brother would soon come for him. The next call at the gate was Headley and Birkenholt. Master Headley's apprentices, be they here? And at their answer, not only the window, but the door and the gate was opened, and stooping low to enter, Kit Smallbones came in, and not empty-handed. Ay, ay, youngsters, he said he, I knew how it would be by what I saw elsewhere, so I came with a fee to open locks. How came ye in to get into such a plight as this? And poor little Hope, too. A fine pass when they put babes in jail. I'm Prentice, said Jasper, though in a very weak little voice. Have you had bite or sup? 
asked Kit. And on the reply, telling those who had had supplies from home had been treated, Smallbones observed, Let them try it, and stood, at all his breath, guarding the two youths and little Jasper as they ate, Stephen at first with difficulty in the faintness and foulness of the place, then then ravenously. Smallbones lectured them on their folly all the time, and made them give an account of the night. He said their master was at the guild hall taking counsel with the Lord Mayor, and there were reports that it would go hard with the rioters, for murder and plunder had been done in many places, and he especially looked at Giles with pity, and asked how he came to embroil himself with Master Bundy. Still, his good-natured face cheered them, and he promised further supplies. He also relieved Stephen's mind about his brother, telling of his inquiry at the dragon in the morning. All that day the condition of such of the prisoners as had well-to-do friends was improving. Fathers, brothers, masters, and servants came in quest of them, bringing food and bedding, and by exorbitant fees to the jailers, obtained for them shelter in the gloomy cells. Mothers could not come, for a proclamation had gone out that none were to babble, and men were to keep their wives at home. And though there were more material comforts, prospects were very gloomy. Ambrose came when Kit Smallbones returned with what Mrs. Headley had sent the captives. He looked sad and dazed and clung to his brother, but said very little, except that they ought to be locked up together, and he really would have left in Newgate, if Kit had not laid a great hand on his shoulder and almost forced him away. Master Headley himself arrived with Master Hope in the afternoon. Jasper sprang to his brother, crying, "'Simon! Simon! You are come to take me out of this dismal, evil place?' But Master Hope, a tall, handsome, grave young man, who had often been much disturbed by his little brother's pranks, could only shake his head with tears in his eyes, and sitting down on the roll of bedding, take him on his knee and try to console him with the hope of liberty in a few days. He had tried to obtain the boy's release on the plea of his extreme youth, but the authorities were hotly exasperated and would hear of no mercy. The whole of the rioters were to be tried three days hence, and there was no doubt that some would be made an example of. The only question was, how many? Master Headley closely interrogated his own two lads, and was evidently sorely anxious about his namesake, who, he feared, might be recognized by Alderman Mundy and brought forward as a ringleader of the disturbance. Nor did he feel at all secure that the plea he had had no enmity to the foreigners, but had actually tried to defend Lucas and Abenali, would be attended to for a moment, though Lucas had promised had to bear witness of it. Giles looked perfectly stunned at the time, unable to take in the idea, but at night Stephen was wakened on the pallet they shared with little Jasper by hearing him weeping and sobbing for his mother at Salisbury. Time lagged on till the 4th of May. Some of the poor boys whiled away their time with dreary games in the yard, sometimes wrestling, but more often gambling with the dice that one or two happened to possess, for the dinners that were provided for the wealthier, sometimes even betting on what the sentences would be, and who would be hanged or who escaped. Poor lads, they did not, for the most part, realize the real danger, but Stephen was more and more beset with homesick longing for the glades and thickets of his native forest, and would keep little Jasper and even Giles for an hour together telling of the woodland adventures of those happy times, shutting his eyes to the grim stone walls, and trying to think himself among the beeches, hollies, cherries, and hawthorns, shining in the May sun. Giles and he were close friends now, and with little Jasper said their patters and ofs together, that they might be delivered from their trouble. At last, on the fourth, the whole of the prisoners were summoned roughly into the court, where harsh-hooking men-at-arms proceeded to bind them together in Paris to be marched through the streets to the guild hall. Giles and Steve would naturally have been put together, but poor little Jasper cried out so lamentably when he was about to be bound to a stranger that Stephen stepped forward in his stead, begging that the boy might go with Giles. The soldier made a contemptuous sound, but consented, and Stephen found that his companion in misfortune, whose left elbow was tied to his right, was George Bates. The two boys looked at each other in a strange, rueful manner, and Stephen said, 
Shake hands, comrade. If we are to die, let us bear no ill will. George gave a cold, limp, trembling hand. He looked wretched, subdued, cheerful, and nearly starved, for he had no kinsfolk at hand, and his master was too angry with him, and too much afraid of compromising himself to have sent him any supplies. Stephen tried to unbutton his own pouch, but not succeeding with his left hand, bade George try with his right. There's a cake of bread, he said. Eat that, and thou'lt be able to better stand up like a man, come what will. George devoured it eagerly. Ah, he said in a stronger voice, Stephen Birkenholt, thou art an honest fellow. I did thee wrong. If ever we get out of this plight... Here they were ordered to march, and in a long and doleful procession they set forth. The streets were lined with men-at-arms, for all the affections and sympathies of the people were with the unfortunate boys, and a rescue was apprehended. In point of fact, the lawyer, mayor, and alderman were afraid of the king supposing them to have organized the assault on their rivals, and each was therefore desirous to show severity to any one's apprentices save his own, while the nobility were afraid of contumacy on the part of the citizens, and were resolved to crush down every rioter among them, so that they have filled the seats with their armed retainers. Fathers and mothers, masters and dames, sisters and fellow apprentices, found their doors closely guarded, and could only look with tearful, anxious eyes at the procession of poor youths, many of them mere children, who were driven from each of the jails to the guild hall. There, when all collected, the entire number amounted to two hundred and seventy-eight, though certain proportion were grown men, priests, wherrymen, and beggars, who had joined the rabble in search of plunder. It did not look well for them that the Duke of Norfolk and his son, the Earl of Surrey, were joined in the commission with the Lord Mayor. The upper end of the great hall was filled with aldermen in their robes and chains, with the sheriffs of London and the whole imposing array, and the Lord Mayor, with the Duke, sat enthroned above them in truly awful dignity. The Duke was a hard and pitiless man, and bore the city a bitter grudge for the death of his retainer. The priest killed in Cheapside, and in spite of all his poetical fame, it may be feared that the Earl of Surrey was not of much more merciful mood while their men-at-arms spoke savagely of hanging, slaughtering, or setting the sitting on fire. The arraignment was very long, as there were so large a number of names to be read, and to the horror of all, it was not for a mere riot, but for high treason. The king, it was declared, being in amity with all Christian princes, it was high treason to break the truths and league by attacking their subjects resident in England. The terrible punishment of the traitor would thus be the doom of all concerned, and in the temper of the Howards and their retainers there was little hope of mercy, nor, in times like those, was there even much prospect that, out of such large numbers, some might escape. A few were more especially cited, fourteen in number, among them George Bates, Walter Ball, and Giles Headley, who had certainly given cause for the beginning of the affray. There was no attempt to defend George Bates, who seemed to be stunned and bewildered beyond the power of speaking or even of understanding, but as Giles cast his eyes round in wild terrified appeal, Master Headley rose up in his alderman's gown and prayed leave to be heard in his defence as he had witnesses to bring in his favour. "'Is he thy son, good armourer Headley?' demanded the Duke of Norfolk, who held the work of the dragon court in high esteem. "'Nay, my lord, but he is in the place of one, my near kinsman and godson, and so soon as his time be up, bound to wed my only child. I pray you to hear his cause, ere cutting off the heir of some old and honourable house.' Norfolk and his sons murmured something about the Headley's skill in armour, and the Lord Mayor was willing enough for mercy. But Sir John Monday here rose. "'My Lord Duke, this is the very young man who is first to lay hands on me. Yea, my lords and sirs, Ye have already heard how the rude sport, contrary to proclamation, was the cause of the tumult. When I would have bidden them go home, the one brawler asked me instantly, Wherefore? The other smote me with his sword, whereupon the whole rascal set upon me, and as Master Alderman Headley can testify, I scarce reached his house alive. I ask, 
should favour overcome justice, and a ringleader who hath assaulted the person of an alderman find favour above others? I ask not for favour, returned Headley, only that witnesses be heard on his behalf, ere he be condemned. Headley, as a favourite with the Duke, prevailed to have permission to call his witnesses. Christopher Smallbone, who had actually rescued Alderman Mundy from the mob and helped him into the dragon court, could testify that the proclamation had been entirely unheard in the din of the youths looking on at the game. And this was followed up by Lucas Hansen declaring that, so far from having attacked or plundered him and the others in Warwick Inner Yard, the two, Giles Headley and Stephen Birkenholt, had come to the defence and fallen on those who were burning their goods. On this a discussion followed between the authorities seated at the upper end of the hall. The poor anxious watchers below could only guess by the gestures what was being agitated as to their fate, and Stephen was feeling it sorely hard that Giles should be pleaded for as the master's kinsman, and he left to so cruel a fate, no one saying a word for him but unheeded Lucas. Finally, without giving of judgment, the whole of the miserable prisoners, who had been standing without food for hours, were marched back, still tied to their several prisons, while their guards pointed out the gibbets where they were to suffer the next day. Master Headley was not quite so regardless of his younger apprentice as Stephen imagined. There was a sort of little council held in his hall when he returned, sad, dispirited, almost hopeless, to find Hall Randall anxiously waiting him. The alderman said he durst not plead for Stephen, lest he should lose both by asking too much, and his young kinsman had the first right, being in the most perilous being singled out by name, whereas Stephen might escape with the multitude, if there were any mercy. He added that the Duke of Norfolk was certainly inclined to save one who knew the secret of Spanish sword-blade, but he was firstly resolved to be revenged for the murder of his lewd priest in Cheapside, and that Sir John Mundy was equally determined that Giles should not escape. "'What am I to say to his mother? Have I brought him from her for this?' mourned Master Headley. "'Ay, and Master Randall, I grieve as much for thy nephew, who to my mind hath done not amiss. A brave lad, a good lad, who hath saved mine own life. Would that I could do aught for him!' It is a shame. Father, said Dennet, who had crept to the back of his chair, the king would save him. Mind you the golden whistle that the grandam keepeth? The maid hath hit it, exclaimed Randall. Master Alderman, let me but have the little wench and the whistle to-morrow morn, and it is done. How sayest thou, pretty mistress? Wilt thou go with me and ask thy cousin's life and poor Stevens of the king? With all my heart, sir, said Dennet, coming to him with outstretched hands. Oh, sir, canst thou save them? I have been vowing all I could think of to Our Lady and the Saints, and now they are going to grant it. Tarry a little, said the alderman. I must know more of this. Where wouldst thou take, my child? How obtain access to the king's grace? Worshipful sir, trust me, said Randall. Thou knowest I am sworn servant to my lord cardinal, and that his folk are as free of the court as the king's own servants. If thine own folk will take us up the river to Richmond, and there wait for us while I lead the maid to the king, I can well nigh swear to thee that she will prevail. The alderman looked greatly distressed. Ambrose threw himself on his knees before him, and in an agony entreated him to consent, assuring him that Master Randall could do what he promised. The alderman was much perplexed. He knew that his mother, who was confined to her bread by rheumatism, would be shocked at the idea. He longed to accompany his daughter himself, but for him to be absent from the sitting of the court might be fatal to Giles, and he could not bear to lose any chance for the poor youths. Meantime an interrogative glance and a nod had passed between Tibble and Randall, and when the alderman looked towards the former, always his prime minister, the answer was, Sir, meseemeth that it were well to do as Master Randall counselleth. I will go with Mistress Dennet, if such be your will. The lives of two such youths as our prentices might not be lonely thrown away, while by God's providence there is any means of striving to save them. 
Consent was then given, and it was further arranged that Dennet and her escort should be ready at the early hour of half-past four, so as to elude the guards who were placed in the streets, and also because King Henry in the summer went very early to Mass, and then to some out-of-door sport. Randall said he would have taken his own good woman to have the care of the little mistress, but the poor little orphan Spanish wench had wept herself so sick that she could not be left to a stranger. Master Headley himself brought the child the back streets to the river, and thence down to the temple stairs, accompanied by Tibble Steelman, and a maidservant on whose presence her grandmother had insisted. Dennet had sadly slept all night for excitement and perturbation, and she looked very white, small, and insignificant for her thirteen years, when Randall and Ambrose met her, and placed her carefully in the barge which was to take them to Richmond. It was somewhat fresh in the early morning, and no one was surprised that Master Randall wore a dark cloak as they rode up the river. There was very little speech between the passengers. Dennet sat between Ambrose and Tibble. They kept their heads bowed. Ambrose's brow was on one hand, his elbow on his knee, but he spared the other to hold Dennet. He had been longing for the old assurance he once have had, that to vow himself to a life of hard service in a convent would be the way to win his brother's life. But he had ceased to be able to feel that such bargains were the right course, or that a convent necessarily afforded the sure way of service. And he never felt more insecure of the way and means to prayer than in this hour of anguished supplication. When they came beyond the city within sight of the trees of Sheen, as Richmond was still called, Randall insisted that Dennet should eat some of the bread and meat that Tibble had brought in a wallet for her. She must look her best, she said aside to the foreman. I would that she were either more of a babe or better favoured. Our Hal hath a tender heart for a babe and an eye for a buxom lass. He bade the maid trim up the child's cap and make the best of her array, and presently reached some stairs leading up to the park. Here he let Ambrose lift her out of the boat. The maid would fain have followed, but he prevented this, and when she spoke of her mistress having bidden her follow wherever the child went, Tibble interfered, telling her that his master's orders were that Master Randall should do with him as he thought meet. Tibble himself followed until they reached a thicket entirely concealing them from the river. Halting here, Randall, with his nephew's help, divested himself of his long gown and cloak, beard and wig, produced coxcomb and bauble from his pouch, and stood before the astonished eyes of Dennet as the jester. He recoiled upon Tibble with a little cry. "'Oh, why should he make sport of us? Why disguise himself?' "'Listen, pretty mistress,' said Randall. "'Tis no disguise. Tibble there can tell you, or my nephew. "'My disguise lies there,' <laughs> pointing to his sober raiment. "'This only can I bring thee to the king's presence. Didst think it was jest? "'Nay, verily, as I am bound to save my sweet Stevie's life, "'my sister's own gallant son, as thou canst be to plead for thy betrothed.' "'Then it winced. "'Ay, Mistress Dennet,' said Tibble, "'thou mayst trust him, in spite of his guard, and tis the sole hope. "'He could only thus bring thee in.' Go thou on, then the lad and I will fall to our prayers. Dennet's bosom heaved, but she looked up in the jester's dark eyes, saw the tears in them, made an effort, put her hand in his, and said, I will go with thee. Hal led her away, and they saw Tibble and Ambrose both fall on their knees behind the hawthorn bush, to speed them with their prayers, while all the joyous birds singing their carols around seemed to protest against the cruel captivity and dreadful doom of the young gladsome spirits pent up in the city prisons. One full gush of a thrush's song in especial made Dennet's eyes overflow, which the jester perceived and said, Nay, sweet maid, no tears. Kings brook not to be oppressed with blubbered faces. I marvel not that it seems hard to thee to go along with such as I, but let me be what I will outside. Mine heart is heavy enough, and thou wilt learn sooner or later that fools are not the only folk who needs must smile when they have a load within. And then, as much to distract her thoughts and prevent tears as to reassure her, 
He told her what he had before told his nephew of the inducements that had made him Wolsey's jester, and impressed her on the forms of address. "'Thou here may make free with him, for that's part of mine office, like the kitten I've seen tickling the mane of the lion in the tower. Thou must say, and it please your grace, and thou needst not speak of his rolling in the mire, thou wottest, or it might anger him.' The girl showed that her confidence became warmer by keeping nearer to his side, and presently she said, "'I must beg for Stephen first, for tis his whistle.' Blessings on thee, fair wench, for that, yet seest thou, tis the other springle who is in the greater peril, and he is closer to thy father and to thee. He fled when Stephen made in to the rescue of my father, said Dennet. The saints grant we may so work with the king that he may spare them both, ejaculated Randall. By this time the strange pair were reaching the precincts of the great dwelling-house, where about the wide-open door loitered gentlemen, grooms, lackeys, and attendants of all kinds. Randall reconnoitred. And we go up among all these, he said. They might make their sport of us both, so we might have time. Let us see whether the little garden postern be open. Henry the Eighth had no fears of his people, and kept his dwellings more accessible than were the castles of many a subject. The door in the wall proved to be open, and with an exclamation of joy, Randall pointed out two figures, one in a white silken doublet and hose, with a short crimson cloak over his shoulder, the other in scarlet and purple robes, pacing the walk under the wall. Henry's way of holding a cabinet council with his prime minister on a summer's morning. "'Come on, mistress, put a brave face on it,' the gesture encouraged the girl as he led her forward, while the king, catching sight of them, exclaimed, "'Ha! there's old Patch. What doth he there?' But the cardinal, impatient of interruption, spoke imperiously. "'What dost thou hear, merry man? Away, this is no time for thy fooleries and frolics.' But the king, with some pleasure in teasing, and some of the enjoyment of his schoolboy at a break in his task, called out, "'Nay, come hither, quip some one. What new puppet hast thou brought hither to play off on us?' "'Yea, brother Hal,' the jester i have brought one to let thee know how tom of norfolk and his crew are playing the fool in the guild hall to ask who will be the fool to let them rake their spite on the best blood in london and leave a sore that will take many a day to heal how is this my lord cardinal said henry i bade them make an example of a few worthless hinds such as might teach the lusty burghers to hold their lads in bounds and prove to our neighbours that their churlishness boasts by no consent of ours i trow said the cardinal that one of these same hinds is a boon companion of the fools Hink ille lacrime, and a speech would have befitted a wise man's vow. There is work that may well make even a fool grave, friend Thomas, replied the jester. Nay, but what hath this little wench to say? asked the king, looking down on the child from under his plumed cap with a face set in golden hair, the fairest and sweetest, as it seemed to her, that she had ever seen, as he smiled upon her. Methinks she is too small to be thy love. Speak out, little one. I love little maids. I have one of mine own. Ask thou a brother among these misguided lads? Not so, and please your grace, said Dennet, who was fortunately not in the least shy, and was still too young for a maiden's same fastness. He is to be my betrothed, I would say, one of them is, but the other, he saved my father's life once. The latter words were lost in the laughter of the king and cardinal at the unblushing avowal of this small prim-faced maiden. Oh, ho, so tis a case of true love, whereto a king's face must needs to a grace. "'Who art thou, fair suppliant, and who may this wind of mine be? "'I am Dennet Headley, so please your grace. "'My father is Giles Headley the armorer, alderman of Cheapward,' "'said Dennet, doing her part bravely, though puzzled by the king's turn of banter. "'And see here, your grace. "'Ha! the hawk's whistle that Archduke Philip gave to me. "'What of that? I gave it. I, I gave it to a youth that came to mine aid, "'and reclaimed a falcon for me. Is to you, child? "'Oh, sir, tis he who came in second at the butts, next to Barlow, to Stephen Birkenholt. "'And he did not. They bore no ill will to strangers.' No, they were falling on the wicked fellows who had robbed and slain good old Master Michael, who taught our folk to make the only real true Damascus blades welcome in England. 
but the lawyers of the Inns of Court fell on them all alike, and have driven them off to Newgate, and poor little Jasper Hope, too. And Alderman Mundy bears ill will to Giles, and the cruel Duke of Norfolk and his men swear they'll have vengeance on the cheap, and they'll be hanging and quartering this very morn. Oh, your grace, your grace, save our lads, for Stephen save my father. Thy tongue wags fast, little one, said the king good-naturedly, with thy Stephen thy Giles. Is this same Stephen, the knight of the whistle and the bow, thy betrothed, and Giles thy brother? Nay, your grace, said Dennet, hanging her head. Giles Headley is my betrothed, that is, when his time is served, he will be. Father Gret sets great store by him, for he is the only one of our name to keep up the armory, and has a mother. Sir, a mother at Salisbury. But, oh, sir, sir, Stephen is so good and brave a lad. He made in to save father from the robbers, and he draws the best bow in Cheapside, and he can grave steel as well as tipple himself, and this is the whistle your grace wots of. Henry listened with an amused smile that grew broader as Dennet's voice all unconsciously became infinitely more animated and earnest when she began to plead Stephen's cause. "'Well, well, sweetheart,' he said. "'I trow thou must have the twain of them, though,' he added to the cardinal who smiled broadly. "'It might perchance be more for the maiden's peace than she wots of now, were we to leave this same night of the whistle to be strung up at once, ere she had found her heart. But in sooth that I cannot do, owing well-nigh a life to him and his brother. Moreover, we may not have old Headley's skill in weapons lost.' Then it held her hands close clasped while these words were spoken apart. She felt as if her hope, half granted, were being snatched from her, as another actor appeared on the scene, a gentleman in a lawyer's gown and a square cap, which he doffed as he advanced and put his knee to the ground before the king, who greeted him with, "'Save you, good sir, Thomas. A fair morning to you.' "'They told me your grace was in council with my lord cardinal,' said Sir Thomas More, but seeing there was likewise this merry company, I just ventured to thrust in, since my business is urgent. Then it here forgot court minute enough to cry out, Oh, your grace, your grace, be pleased for pity's sake to let me have the pardon for them first, or they'll be hanged and dead. I saw the gallows in Cheapside, and when they are dead, what good will your grace's mercy do them? I see, said Sir Thomas, the little maid's errand jumped with my own, which was to tell your grace that unless there be speedy commands to the hours to hold their hands, they will be wailing like that of Egypt in the city. The poor boys, who were but shouting and brawling after the nature of metal youth, the most with naught of malice, are penned up like sheep for the slaughter, ay, and worse than sheep, for we quarter not our mud and alive, whereas these poor younglings, babes of thirteen, some of them, be indicted for high treason. Will the parents shut in from coming to them by my lord of Norfolk's men ever forget their agonies, I ask your grace? Henry's face grew red with passion. If Norfolk thinks to act the king and turn the city into a shambles, with a mighty oath, he shall abide it. Here, Lord Cardinal, more, let the free pardon be drawn up for the two lads and we will ourselves write to the Lord Mayor and to Norfolk, that then they may work their will on the movers of the riot, that pestilent Lincoln and his sort. Not apprentice lad shall be touched till our pleasure be known. There now, child, thou hast won the lives of thy lads, as thou callest them. Wilt thou rue the day, I marvel? Why cannot some of their mothers pluck up spirit and beg them off as thou hast done? Yea, said Wolsey, that were the right course. If the king were moved to pray your grace to pity the striplings, then could the Spaniards make no plaint of too much clemency being shown. They were all this time getting near the palace, and being now at a door opening into the hall, Henry turned around. There, pretty maid, spread the tidings among thy gossip, that they have a tender-hearted queen and a gracious king. The Lord Cardinal will presently give thee thy pardon for both thy lads, and by and by thou wilt know whether thou thankest me for it. Then putting his hand under her chin, he turned up her face to him, kissed her on each cheek, and touched his feathered chap to the other, saying, See that my bidding be done, and disappeared. It must be prompt, if it to be to save any march for death this morn more in a low voice observed to the cardinal. Lord Edmund Howard is keen as a bloodhound on his vengeance. Wolsey was far from being a cruel man, and besides, there was a natural antagonism between him and the old nobility, and he liked and valued his fool, to whom he turned, saying, 
And what stake hast thou in this, sirrah? Is tall per charity? I'm scarce such a fool as that, cousin Red Hat, replied Randall, rallying his powers. I leave that to Mr. Moore here, whom we all know to be a good fool spoiled. But I'll make a clean breast of it. This same Stephen is my sister's son, an orphan lad of good birth and breeding, whom, my lord, I would die to save. I shall have the pardon instantly, Merriman, said the cardinal, and beckoning to one of the attendants who clustered around near the door. He gave orders that a clerk should instantly, and very briefly, make out the form. Sir Thomas More, hearing the name of Headley, added that for him, indeed, the need of haste was great, since he was one of the fourteen sentenced to die that morning. Quipsome Howell was interrogated as to how he had come, and the Cardinal and Sir Thomas agreed that the river would be as speedy a way of returning as by land, but they decided that a king's pursuivant should accompany him, otherwise there would be no chance of forcing his way in time through the streets, guarded by the Howard's retainers. As rapidly as was in the nature of a high officer's clerk to produce a dozen lines, the precious document was indicted, and it was carried at last to Dennett, bearing Henry's signature and seal. She held it to her bosom, while, accompanied by the pursuivant, who, happily for them, was interested in one of the unfortunate fourteen, and therefore did not wait to stand on his dignity, they hurried across the place where they had left the barge, Timble and Ambrose joining them on the way. Stephen was safe. Of his life there could be no doubt, and Ambrose almost repented of feeling his heart so light while Giles' fate hung upon their speed. The oars were plied with hearty goodwill, but the barge was somewhat heavy, and by and by, coming to a landing-place where two watermen had a much smaller and lighter boat, the pursuivant advised that he should go forward with the more necessary persons, leaving the others to follow. After a few words, the light weights of Tibble and Dennett prevailed in their favour, and they shot forward in the little boat. They passed the temple on the stairs nearest Cheapside, up the street. There was an awful stillness, only broken by heavy knells sounding at intervals from the church. The back streets were thronged by a trembling, weeping people, who all eagerly made way for the pursuivant, as he called, "'Make way, good people, a pardon!' They saw the broader face of Cheapside. Horsemen in armour guarded it, but they too opened a passage for the pursuivant. There was to be seen among the people's heads a scaffold. A fire burnt on it, the gallows and noosed rope hung above. A figure was mounting the ladder. A boy! Oh, heavens! Would it be too late? Who was it? They were still too far off to see. They might only be cruelly holding out hope to one of the doomed. The pursuivant shouted aloud, In the king's name! Hold! He lifted Dennett on his shoulder and made her waver parchment. An overpowering roar arose. A pardon! A pardon! God save the king! Every hand seemed to be forwarding the pursuivant and the child, and it was Giles Headley who— loosed from the hold of the executioner, stared wildly about him like one distraught. End of chapter 17 Recording by Esther Simonides